you have your Bibles with you this morning, I encourage you to open them to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, we're going to be looking at verses 17 through verse 34. Well, this morning in Matthew 20, you'll remember over the past couple weeks, Jesus really has been addressing these two questions. How do I get into the kingdom? And then what do I get on the other side? How do I get into the kingdom? What awaits me on the other side? And what we really saw as the key uh, to the answer in both those occasions is humility. That we're a group of people that when it comes to entering into the kingdom, we know that we didn't have what it took. We were spiritually bankrupt. We didn't bring anything to the table. And uh, we rested in the hope of Christ as the only means of salvation. And then coming out of that, um, it's not like we did this to earn a place in heaven. No, Um, we simply uh, were bestowed grace and mercy. And in light of that, we give our lives and we're just grateful that God would grant us the promise that we will exist with him in glory and we will have many times as much. Amen. That's an incredible promise. And so what we're intended to see is that the gospel produces a group of people who are humble and gracious and servant-hearted, knowing that we've been given much on the basis of grace and faith in Christ and our heart attitude towards other people is that we want to serve them, knowing such were we prior to faith in Christ. And so really Christianity and pride, pride and Christianity, uh, they're opposed to one another. They're antithetical to one another. Um, they can't coexist. It's an oxymoron to say a prideful Christian. It can't exist in God's kingdom. That God opposes the proud. Think about that for just a moment. That God opposes the proud. He's not neutral on the prideful people. God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. God doesn't like arrogant people. And neither do we. Do we like arrogant people, prideful people? Those are the people we want to see brought low, amen? Almost every movie that is made, the basis of that movie is some villain that is arrogant and prideful. I was thinking all the movies this week that bases all the Rocky movies. Uh, you know what my favorite was that came to my mind? This is bonus material. I didn't share this with the first service. The one that came to my mind, how many of you know the John Wayne movie, The Cowboys? The, the Cowboys, those young boys that he gets with them. And, oh, man, it's a great movie, isn't it, Pastor Bill? It's awesome. And, and, and you remember, he gathers those boys up, and he trains them to, be, um, to, to move these cattle, and, and there's these rustlers that, that they capture the boys, and there's this scene. If you don't see any in the movie, the best scene, I'm giving it away if you haven't seen it, by the way. He gathers those, but this guy, I think it's Bruce Dern. Bruce Dern, that's it. Bruce Dern, he is mean, he is evil, he is prideful, he is arrogant, and he's captured these boys, and he's got them around. He's messing with them, and John Wayne's watching because he's captured too. And he takes one of those boys' glasses, and Bruce Dern, just mean and arrogant as he is, crumples them up. John Wayne says, that's enough. We've seen what you can do with the boys. How about picking on somebody your own size? And you remember old Bruce Dern walks over to him and goes, you're pretty old. He said, I'm 30 years older than you. I've had my back broke once and my hip twice. And on my worst day, I can whip you. And you say, go get him, John. You know, and he knocks him. And you're like, yeah, way to go. I mean, but that's our thought towards these arrogant people, isn't it? You know, the New England Patriots. We all just want to see them lose, you know, I mean. 
we're off track. We're way off track. I don't know how we get it back now, but essentially what we're going to see in this text is God, as he's gathering his people, listen, there's going to be this group of people in this world, in a world full of self-exaltation, in a world full of me first, in a world full of prideful, arrogant people. There will be a group of people within whom there should be an absence of arrogance. That there's going to be this group of people who the primary inclination of their heart is going to be service. The primary inclination of their heart is not going to be me first. It's going to be you first. They're not going to look out for their own interests. They're going to look out for the interests of others. Because that's the example of our king. With that in mind, let's pray together. Then we'll work our way through this text. Father, we thank you for your word that is living and active. And God, I thank you for the example of Christ who came to redeem us from our sins, but even beyond that came to show us how to live, that the way to greatness is through self-sacrifice and service. And so God, by means of your word this morning, I pray that you would mold us and shape us more and more into the image of Christ, that we might represent you well in this world. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, what we see here in verses 17 through 19 is a prediction of his suffering. Christ is going to predict his suffering. Look with me. It says, as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves. And on the way, he said to them, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes and they'll condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. So this is the third time that Jesus has spoken very plainly with his disciples concerning his death and concerning his crucifixion. You remember all the way back in Matthew 16, Jesus told them that he was going to go and he was going to die on the cross. And you remember, what was the response of Peter? Peter rebuked him. So that's not the way it's going to occur. The second time he predicted his suffering was in Matthew 17. Jesus tells him he's going to go and he's going to die. He's going to be raised up on the third day. And what was the response to that? The very next episode, they're arguing who's the greatest. And here, Jesus tells them, goes into greater detail than he's ever done before. He's going to go into great detail how he's going to suffer and die for their sins and be raised on the third day. And their response is, James and John are going to get mama to come and help them lobby for a position of greatness in Christ's kingdom. They never responded well. They never responded well. Because in their minds, the minds of Uh, The predominant thinking of the Jewish people of that day is that the idea of a suffering Messiah, of one who comes and dies for the sins of his people, that was foreign to their minds. And it wasn't as though God hadn't told them that, that the Messiah would come and die. In fact, all the symbols of the sacrifices of the Old Testament are pointed uh, towards Christ. He would come and die for the sins of the world. We have a whole section of Isaiah that's devoted to the suffering servant, the Messiah who would come and suffer and die for the sins of the people. Many of the Psalms are messianic. Psalm 22, you'll remember, it starts out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's no way you can read Psalm 22 and not see a picture of Christ suffering on the cross. So Jesus has told them, God has pointed them to the fact that Messiah would come and die, and yet they can't see it primarily because they had selective hearing. Do we ever suffer with that? You got kids that that suffer with selective hearing sometimes? That you only hear what you want to hear. You only see what you want to see. And that was really the downfall of the disciples. They had been told, but they only heard about the good parts. They focused in on the good parts. We don't want to hear about 
a suffering Messiah. Surely that's not the way it's going to go. Surely that's not the way it's going to happen. I don't know why he keeps bringing up all this dying stuff, uh, but that's not the way it's supposed to happen. Yet God had told them. And does this still happen today that there are people who only want to emphasize the good aspects of following Christ? That there are people who only want to talk about the rosy and the wonderful parts of Christianity, but they don't want to talk about those passages that tell us that in this world you will have trouble, or don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you as if some strange thing were happening to you, or count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, or the author of Hebrews telling us to let us go outside the camp and bear the reproach of Christ. We don't want to talk about those things. We just want to use Jesus to work our side of the street. We want to use Jesus to, uh, to make us more happy, healthy, and wealthy. That we don't want a Savior who will come and die for our sins. We want a Savior who will help us have more stuff. And to some extent, at least, that appears to be the mindset of the disciples at this point. They're more interested in a crown than a cross. They're more interested in self-help than self-sacrifice. They're more interested in honor than suffering which is why the next events must have been all the more disappointing to Christ. Look at verses 20 through 21. You see a question regarding seats. It says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Command. Isn't that interesting? Command that you, in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. And can you imagine the disappointment of Christ? He's thinking of Calvary. He's thinking of his impending suffering on the cross for their sins. And all they can think about is the seating arrangements of heaven. He's thinking about suffering. They're thinking about status. Now they've brought mama in on the deal. Let's get mama in to, to help us lobby for a position of greatness. And in there it defense, at least to some extent, all the disciples have known to this point is privilege. They, they've not yet really suffered in any great fashion for their faith in Christ, for following Christ. And in fact, the, these two guys, James and John, were a part of the inner three, and they had the special privilege of seeing the transfiguration of Christ. They got to see Christ in all of his glory. They got a special presentation of Christ, a glimpse of his glory there with Elijah and Moses. And they're probably thinking, we got a special closeness with Jesus, so why don't we go ahead and just make sure we got reserved seating in heaven? Let's just shore this deal up right now to determine that we're the closest of, the, of all the disciples. And of the inner three, there were three. There was Peter, James, and John. Peter was included in the group. Are they worrying about Peter at this moment? No, in their minds, there's only two seats. Peter's going to have to figure out his own deal, but we're here and we're asking. I mean, the selfishness of these guys is, is unbelievably clear. Well, look at the response of Jesus in verses 22 through 23. But Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? They said to him, we're able. He said to them, my cup you shall drink. But to sit on my right and my left, this is not mine to give. But it's for those whom have been prepared by my Father. Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. In their minds, they thought, well, just say the word, Jesus. You just say the word, and we'll have a position of, of greatness. And Jesus says, you don't have a clue that greatness and glory in the kingdom is not something that's just conferred upon you. There's a price to be paid. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? 
And by, by the way, what, what is the cup that Jesus is about to drink? Now, often God's wrath in the Old Testament and even in the New, oftentimes God's wrath is connected with the imagery of a cup. We see it in Jeremiah. We see it in Revelation. We see it in Isaiah. But probably the most prominent you'll remember is when Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and he, speaking of the cross, says, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. The cup that Jesus is about to drink is the full cup of God's wrath towards all sin. God's accumulated wrath and anger towards the sin of all human history, of every kind of evil thought, word, and deed. All of God's anger towards sin, all of his wrath is about to be poured out completely on the only perfect person who ever lived, Jesus, the Son of God. And Jesus will drink the full cup of God's wrath so that you and I never have to taste a drop of it. So here is Jesus in front of his guys, knowing the cup he's about to drink and saying, are you able to drink this cup? And they don't even bat an eye. Yeah, we're able. As if what Jesus is about to do is no big deal. It's overwhelming the self-centeredness of these individuals. How does Jesus respond? I think in deep sadness, he says to them, you will drink this cup. You don't know it yet. You don't even know what it involves. And they're not going to drink the same cup as Christ because they couldn't. They couldn't consume the, the wrath of God upon themselves. But what Jesus is saying to them is, James and John, you don't know, but you are going to drink this cup. You are going to die. James and John would be the first and the last of the disciples to die. James will be beheaded. John will die exiled on the island of Patmos, but they will die. But really, the greater point is this. Just as Jesus told Peter, not only am I going to die, but you're going to die. And anyone who wishes to come after me, they got to die too. Take up your cross and follow me. That James and John, you don't understand yet what all of this entails. But you need to know you will drink this cup. You will suffer and you will die on account of me. But here's the point, the greater point that I think Jesus was saying. Not only are you going to suffer and you're going to die and you're going to drink this cup, but he's saying to them, how well you do in that, in that suffering doesn't determine what seat you get in heaven. He says, that's not mine to give. You will drink the cup, but to sit in my right and my left, that's not mine to give. It's not something that you earn. It's not like we're a group of people who are working really hard, hoping to outdo another individual so we get a better seat than they do in the kingdom. I'm fairly certain that when we get to heaven, when we're seated in the presence of Christ, we're not going to be looking around and saying, boy, I sure do wish I had some seats down there. <laughs> or boy, I sure am glad I'm not sitting up there in the cheap seats. 
No, I'm fairly certain when we get to heaven, we're all going to be overwhelmed by the gratitude and grace of God that we even have a seat in the presence of Christ. And I'm fairly certain we'll all be very clear about who deserves all the glory. We didn't do anything to earn this. Christ did it all. And we'll be completely contented simply being in the presence of Christ. So Jesus says, listen, stop worrying about seats. That's not mine to give. You just be faithful. The heart of Christ's people is he gave everything for us. And we're not working to get something. We're working for him and serving others because he already gave everything to us. So these guys, they still haven't gotten it. They've missed the point completely. More interested in seats and status than they are about serving. And it creates division. Look at verse 24. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. Now, I want to be clear, I don't think they're upset because they've offended Christ or because they're being selfish. They're upset because they didn't come up with the idea first. They beat us to the punch. I don't know who these guys think they are. You got to remember, these are the guys that were always arguing about who was the greatest. The reality is all of them thought like, felt like they deserved the best seats in heaven. They haven't learned anything. All they're thinking about is themselves. And the reality is we're all prone to this. We're all prone to thinking more about what we should be getting than what we should be doing. We're all prone to thinking more highly of ourselves than we should. We all have a flesh that tends towards self-exaltation and self-preservation. We all struggle with a me-first mentality. And that kind of sin of selfishness and pride, it always leads to conflict and it always leads to division. You put a group of prideful, arrogant people together and I guarantee you there's going to be major conflict. And I think if we were honest with ourselves, we'd be willing to admit that every, the nature, the root of every conflict in our lives is the sin of pride. That we're not being treated as we think we deserve to be treated. We all struggle with this, amen? I have learned before I get too critical of these guys, I'm starting to see too much of myself in them. And listen, if there's anything that gives me hope in this passage, it's that these guys who are incredibly selfish and prideful and self-centered, you know what? They're going to end up becoming the leaders and the pillars of the church. And the hope and encouragement that I have is if God can take selfish, self-centered people like these disciples and change them and humble them and transform them into servant leaders for the church of God, then there's still hope for me. And there's hope for all of us. Then we see the correction of Christ in verses 25 through 28. It says, but Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentile lorded over them and their great men exercise authority over them. It's not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Maybe in your house you've seen one of these moments where your children are fighting with each other. They're arguing. They're going at each other's throats over something that they think they're not getting or they think's theirs. And the other person is trying to take it. And you as a parent went over there and you broke up those two children. And you said, stop it. That's not the way we act in this house. That's not how we act as a family. And to some extent, I think that's what Jesus is doing here with the disciples. They're arguing over a position of greatness. 
mad at each other, for beating one another to the punch. And Jesus pulls them to the side and says, stop it. Take a knee. That's not how we act. That's not how the people of my kingdom behave towards one another. That we as God's people are called to be countercultural. He says, you see how the Gentiles treat each other. You see how they lord it over one another. That's not us. That's not the character and the quality of the kingdom. That we as God's people, we swim against the current. That in the midst of a culture that is all about becoming great and exalting yourself, making a name for yourself, developing a brand, and step on as many people as you have to to get there. Use people. So much of our culture today is we only want to be around a person if, they, if we think they can some, somehow help us get to another rung on the ladder. That's the prevailing attitude of the world, and Jesus says, not so with us. That's not how we act. That's not how we behave. You want to be great? Be a servant. You want to be first? Become a slave. Follow my example. I didn't come down from heaven to be served. I came down from heaven to serve. That's your example. It's what Paul told the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2. He said, have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped or clung to, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of what? Of a servant. And becoming obedient to the point of death. And therefore God exalted him. No In my kingdom, the way up is down. The way to greatness is through service. You know, really the difficult thing about preaching this passage is that it's incredibly simple. It really needs very little explanation. Anybody can read this and see what Jesus desires to be the prevailing character of his people. That we're to be servant-hearted. We're to lay down ourselves, die to ourselves, and seek to serve others and serve Christ for his glory. It's incredibly simple. You know what I'm learning? Some of the most simple commands of Jesus are often the most difficult to obey. Is it easy to understand? Yeah. Is it easy to live out? Boy, this is some hard stuff. I've often said, I don't mind being a servant as long as I get used as a sermon illustration. Or somebody tweets it out and tells everybody how great a servant I am. But the true test of humility is how do you respond when you're treated like a servant? How do you respond when you're not treated as you think your form deserves? Jesus moves forward. He's going to give them an example. Look at 29 through 34. As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him, and two blind men were sitting by the road. Hearing that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And the crowd sternly told them to be quiet. They cried out all the more, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. And moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they, they regained their sight and followed him. Here is Jesus, he's leaving Jericho, he's headed towards Jerusalem. There's large crowds following him. Why? Because he's healed 
people. He's fed 5,000. He's brought people back from the dead. He's cast out demons. And all of a sudden, he's got this huge following. And he's heading towards Jerusalem. And they're expecting this Red Sea moment. Jesus is going to lead this great revolt against the Romans. It's coming on Passover. All the imagery's coming together. They're thinking it's going to work out. So here he is going to Jerusalem. Huge crowd of followers. This is an important man. This is the king of kings. He's on his way to Jerusalem for an important mission. And what does Jesus do? In the midst of all these followers, all these people telling him how great he is, what does Jesus see? He sees two blind men. Now, you've got to know blind people in that culture were totally despised. It was thought that you had a physical condition because of a spiritual reality. You remember with the other blind man, who sinned? Was it him or his parents? If you were blind, it was because you had some spiritual sin in your life that had resulted in a physical ailment and therefore you were outcast from society. They were the despised of the culture, pushed to the outskirts. And yet Jesus, with this crowd of followers, the one thing he sees is these two blind men. He approached them. They've been crying out. What have they been crying out for? Mercy. They're not like the rich young ruler. They don't bring a moral resume of all the good things they've done. They know they have nothing. They know they bring nothing to the table. They know they deserve nothing. They're just hoping that Christ will be merciful to them. It's obvious God's been working in their heart because what do they they call Jesus? They say, Lord, you're sovereign. You're in control. They refer to him as son of David, which was a messianic title. You know, in the Old Testament, it's interesting. In the Old Testament, you never see the miracle of restoring sight to the blind. Doesn't occur in the Old Testament. The common thought of the rabbis was that the only person who would be able to come and restore sight to the blind would be the Messiah. And it would be one of the great signs that Messiah had arrived that he was restoring sight to the blind. These two guys understand we bring nothing to the table. We need mercy and we understand that's the, that man's my only hope. Those are the kinds of people that Jesus is drawn to like a moth to a flame. And Jesus goes over to this. Now picture this. Here it is. Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, on an important mission to die for the sins of the world. And yet at this moment, the most important thing to him is two blind men. And he stops over to them. And like a waiter in a restaurant, he says, what do you want me to do for you? Folks, that's greatness. When everybody thinks you're great, that your heart is primarily inclined to serve the lowest in the room. And Jesus goes over, what do you want me to do? We want to see. And Jesus touches them and their eyes are opened. Now there's a lot we could talk about there. But do you see in the context of this passage, do you see the point that Jesus is making? That if you want to be great, you want to be great, and the the disciples, they wanted to be great. You want to be great? The way to greatness is through service. The way to greatness is not self-promotion, it's self-sacrifice. You want to be first, become a slave. That the prevailing mentality of God's people will be that there's no act too low, no person too small, and no price we can demand. No act too low. You know, the prevailing thought of our culture is that when you receive or when you ascend to a certain position or level, you don't have to serve people anymore. (laughs) That you get above that. 
That's not the example of Christ, is it? Because there's no one more powerful. There's no one in a higher position than Jesus. And yet Jesus will leverage his power to serve others and not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The greatest picture of this is in John 13, where Jesus walks into the room, and they're having another discussion about who's great, and he takes off his seamless robe, and he puts a towel around his waist, and he washes washes their feet, which was the lowest task you could do. In fact, in Jewish culture, it was illegal, because by touching a person's feet, you made yourself unclean according to Jewish law, and then you couldn't worship. And it was illegal to cause another person to become unclean. It was the lowest task. And Jesus enters into that room and he shows them the way to greatness is through service. There's no act too low. Can I ask you this morning, if Jesus can wash men's feet, what can you do for him? If Jesus can wash men's feet, what can you do for him? It should never be spoken amongst us as Christians. And it really should never be a thought in our mind that I can't do that because I'm above that task. No act too low. No person too small. No person too small. A lot of people, I'll serve, but I'm only going to serve a certain kind of clientele. That I'll serve people as long as they look like me and dress like me. Listen, in God's kingdom, we don't exempt anybody. Even when they don't dress like us, even when they don't act as we think they should act, we say anyone can come who desires to know more about Christ. No person too small and no price we can demand. In other words, we don't sign up for Jesus and say, Jesus, I'll serve you just so long as I get a good seat in heaven. I'm going to give to you, but I'm going to expect repayment next month. No, we give all of ourselves because he gave everything for us. And if he never gave us anything more than the hope of salvation and the promise of many times as much with him and his kingdom, it would be enough to praise him for a thousand lifetimes. You know, this past week, vacation Bible school, there was a woman in our church that she owns her own business. And when you own your own business, there's no paid vacation. <laughs> She's in a business where if she doesn't work, she doesn't get paid. And she gave up a week of her work to come and serve who? Serve children. She took a pay cut just for the opportunity. To spend time with children who don't always act the way we want them to act and aren't always as grateful as we'd like them, or as we'd like them to be. And did she sign a contract with Pastor Sam? Well, I'll serve as long as I get some repayment at the end of this deal. She was just grateful to have the opportunity to be used by God to serve these children. Listen, that should be the prevailing attitude of God's people. No act too low. No person too small. No price we can demand. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look into your word this morning, to be reminded 
that Christ is the one who gave up the glory of heaven. Who descended to the lowest of depths, even death on a cross, that we might have life to serve us. And he has become our means and only hope of redemption, but he is also our example. That that's how we live. God, I pray primarily if there's somebody here this morning who doesn't know you, I pray that they would see the depth of Christ's love and his humility as he came to die for their sins. And I pray that this morning they would run to you like a little child knowing they bring nothing to the table, but their prayer and their hope is that Christ would be merciful. And your word says all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You never, there's not an instance in scripture where you ever turned away a genuine seeker who needed salvation. God, for those of us that do know you, I pray that you would root out any arrogance. You'd root out any pride in our life, any self-centeredness, and mold us more and more into the image of Christ, that the attitude of our life would be self-sacrifice for the glory of Christ and the growth of your kingdom. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. This time, I'll invite you to stand with me as we give you an opportunity to respond in whatever way God's leading on your heart. Maybe you have questions about salvation, how you can know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. There'll be pastors here at the front. Maybe you want to pray with one of these pastors. This is your time. Know this morning, you will never regret obeying Jesus. So you respond as we sing.